You are now listening to Sweep the Rack Podcast featuring Brooklyn Rob and Big Mike. Yo, Rob, you heard of us, official podcast murderers. What's up, homie? Mike, 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 I'm taking it since you're still home and doing this podcast that you didn't hit the super trifecta for the Kentucky Derby this weekend, huh? Uh, it's interesting you say that because I have a, I have a bowling-related uh, Kentucky Derby story, classic Kentucky Derby story, if, uh, if I can share it with you. If we have a couple minutes, we got a couple minutes here? We do have a couple minutes, so a uh, <laughs> bowling-related Kentucky Derby story. So this, uh, is, this is this is one for the books too. To be honest with you, it's not a good story, but uh, it is one for the books. So I forget how many years ago it was. It was quite a few years ago at this point, but it was Kentucky Derby weekend, and it was none other than Bill O'Neill's bachelor party weekend, Kentucky Derby weekend, and uh, we all went down to AC for the weekend. <clears throat> And there were several bowlers uh, that were there that weekend. Two of them, most notably, were uh, were Tony Lacaz and uh, and and uh, PJ Haggerty. So we went down to AC, and I, I don't know why. Maybe we were staying there, but the first place we went was Bally's, and we were in the poker room at Bally's. And if you're familiar with there, they have a, a sports book and a horse racing book right outside the poker room. So we were all playing poker, relaxing. It was early in the afternoon, and it was the day of the Kentucky Derby, so we were having some drinks. So somebody came up with the idea for us to pool our money and put in a bet for the Kentucky Derby that day. So we said, okay, yeah, somebody came by to me at the poker table. I just gave them $20, and it was like, yeah, whatever. So I, I don't really know how all this unfolded because, as I said, I was at the poker table playing poker. But – uh an hour or so goes by the race goes off. These guys were all watching the race. And, uh, when the, when the race is done, they tell me, all right, we're going up, we're getting ready for dinner. I go up and, and PJ Haggerty's missing. He's, uh, he's not around. And a couple people just look like they saw a ghost. And I said to somebody, yo, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And, you know, so I pulled it aside. I don't even remember who it was and said, no, the bet, we put in on the Kentucky Derby would have hit, but the person who put the bet in only put the bet in straight and didn't put the bet in straight and box. And if it would have hit, if he would have put it in straight and box, and if it would have hit, it would have hit for like 400,000. So, so, so was he supposed to put in the bet both like, like, that way as well, or he he messed up well, literally. I so. so I think you just revealed that you know nothing about horse betting, and I'm not saying that I do, but horse betting, Rob, to my belief, is much like lottery betting, where if you're making a bet like that, you're picking a couple shots, maybe with a favorite in a trifecta, you you definitely want to bet it straight in box. So whether it comes out, you know, for instance, one four eight or eight four one or whatever it may be you still win the bet, right? The, the way that, that P and PJ was the person, PJ Haggerty was the person who put, who actually put the bet in and only put it in straight. 
and in essence, I guess you could say cost us the 400000 I want to say we offered him an opportunity tonight to call in, right, Rob? Yeah, he's at Goofy's Adventure uh, Dinner, though. He yeah, he had Goofy's Adventure Dinner, so he couldn't call in. But uh, we offered him an opportunity to call in and, you know, explain his actions and uh, re- recap some of the story. So perhaps in a future week, we give him the open invite to come on. But as I know, he was the one to put the bed in. And uh, I believe there was some destruction of a hotel room involved that evening. I also remember that evening. There's fun other is that we went to dinner at a place uh, uh, called Maggiano's in, in the trap and it's family style, all you can eat. And we were all done eating. We drank a lot, bottles of wine, beer. It was all you could drink, wine and beer, all you can eat family style. And we're all done eating. Everybody's done. We're getting ready for a full night of drinking. And uh, Bill's brother, Todd, uh, decides that he is going to order another round of all the entrees because, you know, even though we're not hungry right now, we can take the stuff with us. We can get it to go and it would be good meals when we come home and for the weekend, whatever. I mean, not something that I would do, but he decided to do this. So he orders all this food and then 10 minutes later tells the wait staff, Oh yeah, we're done. You can pack all this up, you know, all this stuff you just brought to the table. So they bring it to him in bags, like huge grocery type bag type bags with ha- with handles on them and everything. And uh, now we have to travel back to the hotel that we're staying at to drop the food off. And I, I was one of the people, of course, that had to go with them. And as we're getting out of the cab, the bag that he's carrying, he pulls it out of the cab and the bottom of the bag breaks and the spaghetti and meatballs and chicken parm goes all over the, the, the cab stand of the hotel. It goes all over his outfit and his clothes. So he now he had to go upstairs and get changed as well and wash up. So it, it, it was it was just a disaster of a weekend altogether. But uh, yeah, capped off I guess by the early start you could say of not box not not doing the box bet and uh, not winning the four hundred grand. So I remember that weekend recalling how many PBA major titles four hundred grand is. At that time, I believe it was like eight PBA major titles. So we were saying, I think there were like quite a few people in on the bet, but it would have been like a major title and a half for everybody there. So PJ pretty much owes you guys, you know, fifty, sixty thousand each, and that's going to nah, be. No, he, he doesn't owe me anything. He shout to PJ Haggerty. He doesn't owe me anything. You know, but it honest mistake, but his life though but i mean could you imagine the the reverse of that story where where our group does win 400 grand i mean probably several people get locked up that weekend i would imagine we probably don't go home with anywhere near 400 grand we probably Mm -hmm. can't ever tell most of the people in our lives how much we actually won because we wouldn't have came home with that much so probably better that we didn't win the 400 grand but uh so So kentucky derby weekend never Never that great of a weekend for me, Rob. I never pay too much attention to the Kentucky Derby. And I don't think I'll ever put a a bet in on the Kentucky Derby in my life. But I did do a lot of power washing this weekend. I learned that a power washer extender wand needs a minimum 4,000 PSI power washer to run it. And I do not have a 4,000 minimum PSI power washer. Mine's only 3,000. So, yeah, I'm, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning as I go. I did some adulting myself this weekend. I had a new washer and dryer delivered. Home Depot came. So that was big for me, uh, considering uh, I'd never do any of that. Um, it was their second attempt to deliver this. So everything went uh, well. Both, now in, yep. We're both balling out as adults then because uh, I bought a new stove and a new microwave today. 
Look at us, man. Just it's gonna be delivered. It's gonna be delivered on Saturday. Quick, quick, quick three grand. Quick three thousand. Oh yeah. yeah. No sweat. No sweat. No doubt. Yeah. All right. So Rob, we have a, an amazing interview for the people tonight. Uh, you know, we're getting we're getting back on the path of the goats. What What do you have to say about that? If you were to ask me my bowling career, who my favorite, absolute favorite bowler, bowler growing up was, it is this gentleman. Uh, he, if I was to bowl like anybody out there, it was going to be this gentleman. He is an amazing bowler, and I look really look forward to this interview. Like, I mean, it's probably going to be my favorite. Yeah, this oh, one man, y'all got to stop that. That's just, you got to stop that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just tell your 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 listeners this is Norm Duke and I'm not all of that. Oh my goodness, please no, you need to stop. So Rob, I was going to say you know so many Saturday mornings, honestly, as as a kid growing up bowling, I I rushed home from from Saturday bowling from Saturday league bowling to uh, watch bowling on Saturdays, and you know I would watch this guy do so many different amazing things with a bowling ball, usually a a beast or, or a piranha. But uh, just do so many amazing things with a bowling ball. And, and I felt the same way, Rob. Like, uh, definitely one of the guys that you always love to see make the show. And, and you knew he was going to put on a good show when, when, uh, when he got on. So, Mr. Duke, we want to welcome you all, man, and, uh, and say we appreciate the time for coming on and giving us an interview. So, welcome to Sweep the Rack. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And glad to be here. In fact, uh, the prelude to this is I, I – text message uh bill o'neill and i asked him to give me the lowdown on you two i said you know do you where has it your friends he said oh yeah no, i'm not only really good friends but we go way back and you'll enjoy it so i was looking forward to it okay well i appreciate bill lying for us and uh and cover, mm-hmm. covering our ass on that one so that's good and if you have a problem with anything we do just make sure you take it up with him and, and you can speak directly and maybe if we if we you know offend you too much or piss you off too much maybe you can bench him at the PBA team event and put him maybe. Put him <laughs> yeah. In. Bench him right after he's a call in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put him in call the in. Feel free. Yeah. You know, that's fine. He, he usually, he usually does well in that role. So, but again, we want to, uh, we want to welcome you and say thank you for coming on. And uh, I know our fans are really going to enjoy this interview and uh, we're trying to show a little bit of a different side of, of bowling. And, uh, and we know that, that we, we ha- will have an opportunity to do that with you tonight. So, where we wanted to start with you, Mr. Duke, and our first question for you is, is to get a little bit of a background. And uh, one thing that Rob and I both want to know, being such big fans, is how did the sport of bowling come into your life? And, and how did you get to the point where you knew that bowling was something that you were going to do for a living? Oh, yeah. I was lucky in that my mom and my father bought a bowling center in 1972. And I was seven years old. So, you know, I was a little young to do a lot of chores. I had the chores that I needed to accomplish before I got the bowl, but that was my, my goal was get out of school, get my chores done so I could get on the lanes and just, and you know, horse around. But then I was watching the PBA tour one Saturday. I didn't even know about the PBA tour. I was watching it and I'm having a lunch and there's Earl Anthony's bowling for 300. And that's the time that he left the solid nine pin. <clears throat> they cost him $10,000, you know, crew cut, and I just was in that. I said, you can make $10,000 throwing a bowling ball. And I had this, I had the 16 lane bowling center right behind me. And I said, well, gosh, all I got to do is just practice up, get good enough. I can make $10,000 bowling perfect game on TV. So it sounded like it was, you know, like an easy thing. <laughs> I, I, I failed to realize it was Earl Anthony doing it. So he made it seem easy. 
But I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I'm going to be a pro bowler when I grow up. I was probably 13. And I said, I'm going to beat that guy on TV right there. And sure enough, my first game ever on TV was against Earl Anthony. And my mom flew in. And she remembered the day as well, like it was yesterday. So that was one of the most special, you know, moments of my bowling career for sure. That had to be so I, surreal for you. Too. And I won. And I won, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it had been worse about a lot. Absolutely. And and that set the record for the youngest person to ever win a PBA title, which still stands today as well. Yeah, that was a good day for me, no doubt about it. And then I couldn't even celebrate and buy a beer. I was 18 years old in Cleveland, Ohio. So <laughs> it was it was iced tea and chicken fried steak. Mike, so, it sounds like Norm didn't have the right people. He didn't know the right people in Cleveland. You know, no, no, he doesn't have like ours now. Uh, but, but, Mr. Duke, so ha- here's what I'm interested in after hearing that story. How, how did you go from being 13, right, and, and deciding that this was something that you wanted to do to being 18 only five years later and finding yourself bowling for a PBA title against who was considered, you know, to be one of the greats of the game at that time? Ha- what was that process like for you? How did you prove yourself throughout well, that time? Well, you know, a lot of things have to happen, uh, for sure. But the main thing was school. I just hated school. I couldn't stand school. Uh, I, I had troubles not, not sleeping through the classes. Um, so as I was growing up, I, I, I knew you either go to college and, and you go that route, or you find something equal to or better. And I just realized that bowling for a living had to be the most fun of any that has to be dream career right so that was the goal then and then in order to do that you you enter yourself in all these tournaments the handicap tournaments and the scratch tournaments that uh you you spot pins to people that have handicap well you go through those and if you win enough of them then you retain confidence and you just keep you, you keep elevating the playing field so i kept i kept entering tournaments that were bigger and badder than the ones before and I had some success in those and so therefore you know the handwriting was on the wall for me I thought I was the best in the world at 18 unbeknownst to me I wasn't even that good yet but I thought I was so (laughs) who's going to stop a guy who feels like he's going to win right yeah obviously confidence is important tell tell us about one of those events what was like the biggest amateur event you had bowled before you actually turned pro and went and won your first pro title oh gosh we in dallas fort worth we had uh, you know memorial day labor day those those weekends were something special for us because we would qualify in like two or three different tournaments and so sunday and monday came around and you did nothing but bowl the finals in all those that you did qualify for so you could make five thousand dollars on a monday final over here but then you can make $2,500 in the morning and you could do a finals on Saturday I mean it was just unbelievable the amount of bowling that we had access to in the real I uh, say late 70s early 80s it was just a madhouse of tournaments so they weren't that big but they would give you a sense of pressure because if and, you and- if you win the tournament you, you could you could you know eat well and and uh, live a better life. I was very young, so I like to have money in my pocket. And when you in, in those tournaments, were you bowling against some guys who were already competing at, at the pro level? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Back then, you had Gary Dickinson 
uh, Bob McGregor, who wasn't a pro at that time, but he was as good as any pro we ever knew. Uh, let's say I was a, just after Bobby Meadows, uh, but right in the heyday, there you have uh, Dale Ballard, Chris Warren, and I, uh, and there were others. You know, south of us in Austin, you had Robert Lawrence, and and uh, goodness, you had a slew of folks in in, uh, in Oklahoma. So we had plenty of people to show us how good we were or how bad we were. Uh, Ozio was in that group. So we had some really prolific uh, athletes in those events. So yeah. if you beat them, you just felt like you could continue. Yeah, that's a pretty good group. How about uh, how about action, Mr. Duke? Was there was there action back in the in the day? Any any action stories you can share with us? Well, you know the story is that that that's all there was was action. And uh, my goodness, you know, you, you I, I would go broke so many times a week. <laughs> it was crazy because <laughs> it seemed like I'd be betting everything I had every time. And when you went broke, now. Yeah, I used to have a job at the Boy Scouts of America General Store. I sold I sold uh, uh, badges, Cub Scout badges and stuff. That's what I did to get just enough money to parlay a forty dollar nest egg into something. And boy, sometimes I just got on a roll and, and would do so. And then I was fat for a while, but boy, it seemed like I would go broke more often than not. Oh my God, I, I so, love that. you know talking about. Talk about the stories, though. Oh, my gosh. Every weekend, uh, you would have – like, I'd have a freeze-out with Steve Stallings for 4000 on Sunday night. And we'd have – God, they'd sell tickets. And there'd be 100 people that would buy a ticket to come and watch us. And then that would spur on two or three other matches from other people. And and then we'd go watch those. It was just a – it was a genuine time in Dallas-Fort Worth if you were a gambler because you not only had us in Bowling, but you had a lot of pool tables in Bowling Centers. And on those pool tables, you had some of the greats playing pool right there. Uh, so then we, we learned how to gamble through those. through those. Uh, we had foosball matches that they were playing for a 1000 a game. So it got, the money was all around you, and it taught me a lot about pressure. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I'm not proud of it. Of course not. Uh, I, I kind of, uh, my mom had too much to worry about back then, I think, but I wouldn't change it because that's part of who I am. thousand dollar game foosball. <laughs> oh yeah. We had, we had two in Mount Pleasant, Texas, where I was born. We had Tony Chitwood and Tony Jagger who won three times they won the world doubles championship and one of them or both of them won the, the, the singles back in the day i would come in in the afternoon and in my chores i would clean the foosball tables and they would tell me how to do it and if i did it perfectly then i could watch them practice that was that was my 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 prize i could watch them practice and at the very end they would give me like five minutes on how to do a push shot or a pull shot or, or that was to me I would have cleaned a thousand foosball tables just for that 20 minutes of watching them work out together. And then we would go to Dallas, just a, a, a fun trip with dad to gamble on those two because they had a match. And so why my father would carry me at, you know, I was probably 13, 12, but I would hang along, hang along. And I got to see a lot of really cool action matches, bowling and otherwise. Norm, how uh, how is your pool game? Can you can you hustle some uh, 
some people at, at pool? Oh, I used to. Yeah, when I was when I was learning how to bowl, I was a much better pool player uh, and a much better gambler at pool. But I was awful at gambling at bowling and awful at bowling, really. But that was kind of what was my college is I would win money at pool as a kid, and then I would I would invest it in my bowling and lose it and go broke. So then I, I'd have to find a way to make enough money to to you know get a nest egg again and goes goes take another swing. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't you know the 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 best style of life for a kid in in school. But like I said before, boy, did we have fun! My goodness, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Pool, foosball, like bowling. Rob, this is this is this is a legend. This is a legend forged from the fires of action forever. I mean, really. Oh, there was definitely, yeah, action was, was, yeah, always a part of my life, no doubt. Even the first eight years, I guess, of my bowling career, uh, I wasn't bowling that good. So in order to get home sometimes, you have to find a match. And gosh, we bowled so many of them in the New York area. Chicago was a, a hotbed for action. Some of the times they would travel to the Detroit area just to play us. And, uh, you know, they, the, the guys who, who were good at gambling on bowling, they didn't care who they were, they were playing against. They just wanted an advantage in their mind. And I remember, gosh, at least 20 times I got to watch David Ozio play action on a side day uh, bowling tour. And, you know, it's hard not to learn from guys like that when you're watching them in pressure situations and you're watching them manipulate uh, the money and uh, they would be intimidating sometimes and they would not be at others and you would wonder why and then you'd finally learn that it depended on who they were bowling and how that player would react to a certain behavior. So I got to learn that, man, the last thing you want to do against Pete Weber is get him riled up. You just you just tell him you give him high fives and tell him I shot Pete, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but a guy like Gary Dickinson, who is one of my favorite bowlers of all time, by the way, and favorite people, Gary Dickinson. You, if you showed him uh, intimidation tactics, it would get him furious, just like it would Pete. But he wouldn't perform as well as Pete would. He wouldn't retaliate quite as good. So you learned who could take it and who couldn't. And uh, I know back in the day, Tony Westlake was about as—he's about as hard to move as any man on earth when it came to bowling action. Uh, That's he amazing. Was and he was great. Yeah, and I listen—I I went to college in a, in a town called Jersey City, New Jersey, right outside of New York City. I don't know if you're familiar or not, but it's—it's it's rather a rough area. There's some grimy people from Jersey City, and a. Uh, a common thing to do up there, you know, if people didn't have money, but they wanted to get in the game and they wanted to bet, they were trying to make some money. You would have some people that would throw up in what they called an air bet. All right. Explain no money, no money, but they're betting. They have to win the game or they have no way to pay the debt. That's a good way to get shot, Mike. Oh, in Jersey city, it's a real good way to get shot. Oh, you're talking about, in other words, you make the bet, but if you lose, you don't have the money. Oh, yeah, air bet. Air oh, no, bet. no, we don't We air. don't do any of that. No, you see, okay. Randy makes the comments every once in a while. Norm, it's a bet, and he'd had no money in his pocket. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no way. I never made a bet I could not pay off. Uh, 
there were times that we would make a bet with money on the way, but we had to prove that that, that capital was on the way. But otherwise, you'd get hurt. And then worse off, you'd never get another play from anybody else. You know, you'd you'd taint your uh, your reputation, and nobody would play you. So that would be counterproductive to the cause. So no, never play with any. And and I don't even suggest nowadays. You know, we got college bowling now that can that can uh, um, prepare the youngsters for tour life in a much better way than what we had. We didn't have college bowling back then. Heck, we. I went to tour fresh out of high school, so so did Pete. It's times have changed for the better with regard to that. I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm gonna kind of fast forward a little bit, and you mentioned David Ozio. David Ozio was, I mean, as textbook style, traditional, one-handed as you can get. I mean, he was like everything about his five-step delivery was amazing. Now, fast forward to today, right? The two-handed revolution is is in full effect. Um, it's becoming more and more, uh, more and more as the younger guys kind of kind of grow up on the tour. Now you're seeing a lot more of them. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, Brian Voss, who we know is a friend of yours, uh, had some interesting comments and stance on two-handed bowling. Um, and I'm not sure if you've read those comments, but they were pretty much out there I have. on the internet. Okay. Um, I guess my question to you is, where do you stand on two-handed bowling? Uh, um, what do you oh, think this about is so the easy. This is so easy. Um, first of all, you stay behind the line, you knock them down, and you do so any way you can. Uh, secondly, I, I'm a two-handed bowler. I just take my for one hand off a little earlier than they do. But I'm definitely in my setup using two hands. I'm not tying one behind my back and... So there's never been a restriction placed on me. Nobody said you can't use two hands. Here's the deal. Back in the day when I first came out on tour, when 213 was the absolute highest anybody had ever averaged on a PBA tour for a year, no one would throw it with two hands, not now, not ever back then, because you would just get your face kicked in. Jason Belmonte may be just as dominant back then as he is now, but he'd do so with one hand, trust me. There was just no benefit for that much power and rotation because back then we didn't have oil patterns that, that kept all the lanes pretty much the same. We didn't have we, – we had what we called track shots, which there were indentions in the lane that the Carter and the Hardwicks had to just kind of scoot it. Even the Nelson Burton Jr. was great at this. You scooted it down the lane right in that track. If you revved it at all, you were dead. I mean, completely dead because you couldn't keep up with those that could play that track shot. That's why Carter and Hardwick and Nelson Burton were so dominating back in the day. So they say, well, this is a new thing. No, we all started with two hands when we were four years old, okay? We all did. So it's not new. It never has been new. What it is is an advantage that has been allowed by our playing fields. And now that 230 will lead the average for a year, and the strikes count 10 plus the next two balls still. And we're striking at a rate of seven and a half. We're used to strike at six. Well, yeah, now there's room for error. There is uh, bowling balls that pull the oil off the lane and allow you to migrate left and play off of your own track. You couldn't do that back in a rubber ball. Come on. So we respect these these kids with two hands uh, with all our mites because they were never given parameters and they just got it done and 
for them to dominate in Jason's case, for them to dominate like they are, uh, even Simonson, Svensson, Kyle Troop, there are so many. It, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, they're just as pretty in my mind as Ozio was. But then we get the other end of it, like your, your Kyle Sherman's and your Marshall Kent's and your EJ Tackett's and Rashes, the guys who put one hand in it and just strap it like, like, like uh, Bob, uh, uh, Robert Smith used to. That's still a great, great thing to watch. It's gorgeous when you like to watch athletes. Uh, it's the same to me as watching as watching uh, a three-point shooter and, and then being dished inside. There's two totally different players there, two totally different uh, uh, physical uh, – uh, let's say one guy's 6'9", six, 11, six, and the other guy's barely six foot tall. But watching them both, it's a thing of beauty. And that's what I see in the bowling world right now. Just getting it done. Just finding a way to get it done from the foul line back to the approach. doesn't really matter, right? If they're knocking the pins down, that's all that matters within the legal rights of the sanctioning bodies. I mean, is that safe to say? Yeah. Got it. Right. But, guys, now look, what it, it, what it does create is if those guys get the majority of the money and there's not a whole lot of money to be thrown around – well, then eventually there'll be, there'll be a majority of the people who like to hook the ball or who, uh, who rely on their power game. Well, as we've seen this year, with me winning back-to-back, uh, they put a requirement because it was dual lane conditions both, both times on, on shot making and mental. You, you had to think yourself around that bowling center. I don't care how many hands you use. Both of the shots in both cases were tough, and the scoring environment was exceptionally low. The spare shooting re- requirement was higher, and therefore a guy like me could throw his weight around, so to speak. <laughs> so what it has done is it created a situation where I think I'm more winnable now than I was 10 years ago because there's less people to compete with when I have the advantage. Does that make uh, sense? Great, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I never really looked at it like that. So when Mike, uh, take a note, when, when Norm has it, not a lot of people are also going to have it. And it's, it, it's a really, really good way of the, like thinking about it. And it's true, the dual patterns, right? That's where like Norm shined. And it, it, was, well, it was awesome yeah. to watch, by the way. Well, if you yeah. look at the U.S. Opens prior to them, I think two years ago or three, they started putting patterns down. And uh, since then, Jacob Bufriff, Butcherf has led both of them by 650 pins or more. Before those, they were flat. Every U.S. Open was a flat pattern. Well, I was was on the shows, gosh, more than half the time the last couple of decades, simply because the requirement now is on more on spares than on strikes. And so your power game is neutralized in that case. Same as Dustin Johnson's power game is neutralized when they go to a tight golf course. So, if you're somebody who, uh, who, like me and Walter, pride ourselves in the spare game and split making and our ability to think ourselves around uh, uh, the course, well, there are few and far, a fewer and a fewer of us, and much further in between. Yeah, and I, I, so I we kind of feel like left-handers. See? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, I can. I think that that's a really apt analogy, and I, I think that the fact that you won twice this year. 
uh, again, which Rob said, I'd like to echo that that was awesome. And congratulations to you. That was uh, amazing to watch. But I think that really did come in an interesting time. And Rob and I kind of discussed it on the podcast before where there was a lot of chatter going on at that time, right before you won, where guys were coming out and saying, oh, the playing field isn't even fair right now. And then a couple weeks later, fast forward, and you had won two titles. And, uh, yeah, I think it really showed something about your mindset versus other people's mindset in terms of, you know, taking advantage of what's there versus being so worried about what somebody else is doing. But uh, you, you brought up the U.S. Open, Mr. Duke, and, and there's so many tournaments that we wanted that we would love to go over with you and bring up and break down the details of. But we only have so much time. We don't want to keep you here all night. But you brought up the U.S. Open, and uh, one of the, the titles that we wanted to ask you about was the U.S. Open where Mika missed the 10-pin. Was that the most shocking victory of your career, would you say? Well, it was kind of a weird thing because with four shots to go, I am digging because I know how hard it is to make a mark on a U.S. Open condition like that. And a mark is harder to get than a strike. So I almost felt like I'm better off forcing him to mark than I am forcing him to strike. So... I lifted myself and just careered four shots and just said, you know, it's out of my hands. And then he won it. He won it right there in the 10th frame. He threw the shot of his life in the 10th frame and ring and tend on a, 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 a suspect rack that was just vicious. And now when Mika ring tends and needs a mark, you lose. So, yes, now I, I went from having a chance to not. But then when he missed it, I really, for a for a brief moment, I said, no, he gets that over. I've been punked here. <laughs> this, is, this is not real. I just knew that he would get it over for a brief moment. And then he, he laid down on the ground, and that's when I knew, like, oh, my gosh, this is uh... – Mike, Norm was waiting for people to jump out of the back and be like, you're on candid camera, and, like, everyone was going to laugh. I thought I was being punked, really. I did. But, you know, no, immediately I... I went from that to his family. I had just watched them basically celebrate victory in such a way that was genuine and, and lovable to watch. And, and I enjoyed that with them, even though it wasn't me winning and it hurt. I got to see some, some just sheer joy. And now I'm looking at the same faces. And that, oh boy, that was hard. That was hard on me. I felt terrible for that family. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, you – especially with him. That's why I think it was so shocking because he was such a good spare shooter and you, you almost just put it in the bank that he's going to make that 10 pin. And I'm sure, you know, his family was probably thinking the same thing. And yeah, it was just a, a really uh, interesting finish that I think you were involved in when, when looking over things that, uh, you know, looking over your PBA bio that, you know, stuck out to me as, as definitely an occurrence that, that I would want to ask you about just what your perspective was, but I think you uh, you did an interesting job of giving your perspective there. So uh, I appreciate that. What, what Mr. Duke, would you say is your most memorable title on TV? Is it your first against Earl Anthony that you, that you brought up earlier? Most memorable title? Uh, no, there, yeah, I, I, I don't know. There are, there are a lot of them, okay? That so many. <laughs> really stick out. Yeah, so 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 give us a couple. No, give us a couple. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of them that really stick out. Yeah, the first one is, is definitely one. The U.S. Open to create the Grand Slam because you know you have to have it. Ah, my gosh, and then I left a bucket, basically gave it away, and then I had to win it again. 
that will always be right there. Then, you know, two majors later, I went three in a row. So that was something that I'll never, ever forget. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there are other small victories that you get that, that you stick in your mind forever that seemingly are insignificant. And I know that the Dick Weber, uh, I think it was called the playoffs at the time, but the last day, the finals, the three finals was, uh, was Parker and, and uh, Martin Larson and I, and we're bowling our 30th game, our 29th game, and we had five or six 15-minute practice sessions in between. So if you add it all up, <laughs> and the, the, the last two standing were the oldest two in the field other than Walter, it was Parker and I. And I, I, I took pride in that because I am in the gym enough um, to be prepared and I had prepared for the event. And so that, that's one that I'll never forget because I worked hard for it. Even though nothing really happened that made it, you know, seemingly memorable, I might, it just seemed like it stuck in my mind. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you actually mentioned two facts about your own career there that we wanted to bring up that, that a lot of times for, or just is just passed over. And I think, you know, and, and Rob thought as well should definitely be highlighted more. But uh, you won. You're, you're the only player to ever win three consecutive majors. And you did that in 2008, uh, the Denny's World Championship, the U.S. Open and the PBA World Championship. And you're also one of only two bowlers to win the Grand Slam, yourself and Mike Albee. Um, so, some thoughts on that? I mean, these are these are ultimately historical accomplishments that. I feel like they get put by the wayside sometimes. Do you do you agree or or do you feel differently about it? No, I, I say look if you can if you can have a career uh, that something like three consecutive majors gets overlooked. Well, congratulations, my friend. Um, that's the <laughs> yeah, first sure. thing I would say. <laughs> it's, it's kudos to me for that. Well, um, it sticks out in my mind because it was just so historic at that moment for me that wow. Now then, I know that looking back a hundred years, let's say looking forward a hundred years, yeah, somebody's going to win three in a row, four in a row, maybe five, six, who knows? Um, and and I'll be mentioned in a, a brief little thing to say, well, you know, he tied now, he beat North. Well, you know, that's wonderful. But the thing that really sticks out is the moment for me, more than the accolade, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that no one else has enjoyed that moment yet. When they do, I can tell you they're going to be happy people. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> And so some of the things that I look back on is I'd say, look, you know, the youngest to win and and then oldest to win two in a row. That just came about. My goodness. Um, It takes 20, 30 years before you realize the full significance of it. I can tell you that because I was embarrassed about being the youngest bowler to ever win for many years until one day I went, wait, wait, that's actually a good thing, Norm. But I was 18 years old. I was traveling the tour, and and you know I didn't want to be referred to as the youngest bowler out there, or the the kid, or the rookie, or anything like that. So it takes years sometimes before you realize any kind of significance. And I'm lucky that I've been around guys long enough to start really realizing significance in some of these, and I'm proud of it. Do you uh, do you feel at that age when you were getting labeled as the youngest player and, you know, they were everybody on tour was – do you feel like you put more pressure on yourself as an 18-year-old that you have to, like, carry around now this title as being the youngest bowler to ever win a PBA title? 
Man, I don't know. There was a couple things going on in those eight years that I didn't win. And the first was I had to realize that I wasn't that good. And I thought I was the best in the world. And it took a while for me to realize, wow, you're not even that good yet. And then I had to, uh, I had to realize that it wasn't as easy as it seemed because I'd won the ninth tournament I ever entered. And I thought, well, wow, if you win one out every nine, that's a pretty good career. Well, <laughs> how about 200 more and you never even, <laughs> yeah, you never even give a smell. Uh, I had to realize that they, they weren't as easy as that first one seemed. And then I had to do one thing that does not come easy, and that is I had to tool a game that seemingly had no advantages. So when I say that, I say, okay, left-handers, they can create an advantage over right-handers. You can see it. Uh, but when you're right-handed, you have far many right-handers. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so I don't have that advantage. I don't have a power advantage because I'm five foot five. Uh, some do and did. You know, Chris Warren, I would I would say had a power advantage, but I couldn't get to that. Uh, I wasn't that great a spare shooter. Um, I was a tweener. I was one-dimensional. So I had to first of all real recognize, hey, look, if you're going to make this a career, you cannot let the lame man dictate your success. You have to be able to conquer everything. And in order to do that, you have to put a lot of different tools in your bag. And right now you have one, you're a tweener. And look at the money list, tweeners are nowhere. So I came to grips with that and I threw some, I really threw resources at trying to be able to hook a ball and back one up. I had to be able to take chop out of play uh, with the 610 and the 3610. So I needed a cutter. I needed things that I recognized. And that's just something you don't, you don't just walk in and go, okay, I'm going to put through a couple hours and all right, so put that tool in. No, you got to grasp that tool, get really good at it, and then find a way to get confident with it. Because I'd find myself on TV going, I'm going to cut this ball, and I'd miss the 610, you know, because I'm nervous. There's so many things happen in that, in that what I call my college. And I wouldn't be the bowler right now as I am without that drought. But I can honestly say I should have done a better job at getting through all that than, you know, eight years winless. Truly a master of the game, though. Truly a master of the game. Really? That, like, Mike. definite. When you look up master of the game in the, in, in the dictionary for bowling, Norm Duke's picture is there, son. Mike, it's, it's great I advice for it. kids coming up, though, the junior bowlers now that are uh, looking at Oh, great. my God. Unbelievable. Like, can you imagine how it must fry him out when he's bowling a squad and he sees some of these young kids miss single pin spares and miss <laughs> spares and still strike and just throw a bunch of strikes to make up for it? It's got to drive this guy crazy. The guy's a master of the game. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, it, and it does. And it does. And you have to actually, t you know, talk to yourself about it. You have to say, look, their advantage is not that spare right there. or Otherwise, you would be at home. You wouldn't even be in this field. That's oh, how, dwarf, how how much they would dwarf you. So until they get it, try to keep up with their first shot. And, I mean, that's basically what I do for a living right now is try to keep close enough with my first shot to have spares actually have a, have a matter. Because <laughs> if there's 700 pins ahead of you, making a 10 pin is not going to help much. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, you better be striking. And, then, you know, right we started this out with Bill. I, you know, that's the – the type of thing that got him on on my squad is is the weaknesses that you can that you can point at with most athletes in any sport there aren't many doggone fingers pointed at bill's weaknesses because he has none 
he's got a great mental game. He's got a great spare game. He's got a great ability to go around level. If he has to go at him, he will figure it out or he'll take non-reactive. He will never shoot himself out of an event. And he's just a bulldog. So that is the type of player when I, when I said, I got to build some. I needed to build myself a Bill O'Neill. Mm. That, that's kind of, in, in, in hindsight, you know, Bill wasn't even out when I was building that. But that's the kind of player I was looking at. I need to be that guy. No, and honestly, and I—he—he's our good friend. But in in all fairness, Rob and I are both very big fans of bowling. We both watch a lot of bowling, and some of the things that you mentioned earlier about your wins earlier this season, and being able to think around the lanes, and and you know, we're, there being other factors other than just being able to repeat the shot. I do think that that has contributed to Bill's success and being able to stay in the mix of things over the last few years too, because he does oh have that gosh. kind of that kind of approach. Well, not only that. that. You were describing. But, yeah, and he trumps people in those elements. He doesn't just get by. He trumps people in those elements. So, you know, I couldn't say enough about uh, the guy. I love watching him bowl. And to have him on our, our, uh, our strikers, uh, what is the most unbelievable thing for me is he has never thrown a shot in the 10th frame for us on a roll-off scenario. Or, or I don't even know if I've ever put him in the number five spot. And I look back and I go, this guy's two-time U.S. Open champion, one of the greatest in the 10th ever, ever, ever. And that's how confident our squad is in every player, is when Bill and Tommy look at me and say, Duke, you've got the advantage, they expect me to deliver. And when we look at Rhino and say, you're the one with the advantage, we expect just as much out of him as anybody else on the squad. And that's the kind of pro squad we have. Those five guys, they're like, we don't care who throws it. We would much rather have the guy with the advantage with the ball, no matter so, what team they have. When you guys shot the 300 on TV together uh, at the team event, did you demand four twelfths of the money for that? Or <laughs> were you nice enough to split it with those guys evenly? No, I, I wanted eight twelfths because I'm the player and the manager. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I appreciate that. Okay. So, no, so, as a matter of fact, we split it all 20% a piece and we were happy to get that $10,000 from the PVA, which they did not have to do. Yeah, that was cool. That was very good of them. So we're, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction here, uh, Mr. Duke. So do you, you obviously bowled in it many times. So I'm sure you remember it. The Johnny Petraglia open at Carolier Lanes back in the day. And uh, sure. this was, a, this was a tournament that Rob and I used to attend as kids. And uh, every year was like, we just talked about it tonight before uh, we came on. It was like a vacation for us. We would take days off from school to come up and, and watch you guys bowl. And uh, this is really when, when you were kind of at the height of your career. So we wanted to just run a couple things by you from those experiences that we had. And one of them was that uh, the guy who owned the pro shop that, that I, who was my coach at the time, they used to come up and buy a lot of the bowling balls off of the, the drillers on the truck that you guys would give back to them. And they would then come down and plug them up and sell them. And obviously you guys owning the bowling balls was part of the appeal. And one time they came home and there was this electric storm with the pin in the palm. And I put my hand in it and, Oh, I mean, it almost cut my hand. The thumb and fingers were raised so razor sharp. And I asked the, the guy who was my coach, I said, whose ball is this? He said, oh, that's, that's one of Norm Duke's balls. And I said, get out of here. How, how does he bowl with the, with the fingers and thumb that sharp? I don't think people understand. Rob, you can comment on it too. 
We're talking no bevel, straight off the drill, sharp. Rob? Yeah, it's true. Um, you, it's, you put your hand in it, and then you feel like, oh, my God, like, there is, you cannot squeeze at all. That ball, there is zero. If you squeeze it, you're literally going to cut your finger off, it felt like it. So talk to us about how it came to be that way and, and why your uh, grip is like that. Yeah, it, it, I evolved it, but it was because of grips. I had this company called Hex Grip back in the day that wouldn't split my fingers when uh, when I used grips. When I put anything else, after we went bankrupt, when I put anything else in there, I would just rip my fingers up. So I just went without grips. But my problem was is if I beveled the hole, then Detroit became so much different than Arizona. So Detroit, I'd be grinding, stuffing my fingers in, and I couldn't get them all in there, and I'd get – or excuse me, Arizona, I get to Detroit and, and my fingers would shrink. And the next thing I know, I, I was swimming in them. And so I, I said, well, something's got to change. I mean, this is not where you can just pull a grip out and put another grip in. So I learned that if I left the edges really sharp, then those sharp edges would go into the creases just underneath the pads of a fingertip of your fingers. And I could hang off of it like like hanging off the monkey bars with two fingers. You know, I could create a ledge instead of a hole that my finger had to fit. I was, I was now pulling on a ledge. So it didn't matter how big that hole got. Either. It could be really big, and I'd still feel like I'm hanging onto a ledge. So I said, well, this is much better. And then the thumb was a little bit different in that I'd be in a hurry a couple of times, and I'd get down there and go, man, I didn't even, I didn't even you know, buzz sand this thing. But I'd have no time, and I'd tape it out, and darn, it didn't feel that bad, and started bowling good with a couple of them. I said, well, this is actually better than what I used to do, so I left it. Now, I still bevel the heck out of a bowling ball. I just don't bevel that edge that is nearest to the finger hole. I leave that front edge pretty sharp, and that's so it will fit in the crease of the thumb the same way. Uh, It really wasn't rocket science, guys. It's not like, you know... (laughs) No, but listen, I, I think if anybody has... I'm not Brandon DeChambeau here is what I'm getting at. I hear you, but if anybody has the opportunity, if any of our listeners out there have the opportunity to feel a bowling ball edge, like if you're getting a ball drilled, ask your bowler to, ask your driller to feel that edge after it's drilled but not cut and realize that that's, that's what he uses in a fingertip grip. I mean, the first time I felt it, honest to God, I couldn't even believe it. It, it was like someone was playing a joke on me. I but yeah, it, it, true, true, true. And, uh, you know, later confirmed that and just very interesting. Also, another thing I wanted to bring up. Wait a minute. Before, before we, before we get off of that, uh, I'd like your listeners to know that, listen, when I take a month or two off and I go in, I can't use those sharp edges the first two or three or four days. Mm. It feels the same way to me as you just explained. How could anybody put their hand in here and throw it? But then after I start building up a little callus or something, then it gets tolerable. Then after a week, yeah, now I get puffy and I don't feel it. So don't think that you're going to feel the same thing that I do when you make those <laughs> holes sharp. Uh, we're not here to bleed or, or, or to, to bowl with pain, and you will. I would if, if I didn't bowl so much. So to be fair with everybody, probably not the grip that everybody wants. No, no, no. There's no, I, honestly, I don't think you could go out and throw a ball like that unless you had, uh, you know, a callus build up or, or your fingers were already at a certain No question certain about point. it, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, yeah that's no a doubt. great disclaimer. That's a great, great disclaimer. You don't yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. How they are. That's how sharp they are. Do you, 
you need a disclaimer if you're going to talk about uh, Norm Duke's uh, finger holes. There needs to be a disclaimer. We'll we'll re-record that, Rob, and put a disclaimer at the end of the episode as well, so no one no one sues That's us for nice. sharp finger holes. But uh, yeah, the other thing that I wanted to bring up from the Giants Tragic Open, and I don't know if I'm misremembering this because you know, again, I was a young kid at the time, but I I remember a time where I believe you bowled three three hundreds in a row at the Johnny Petraglia Open, where you went three hundred three hundred. Then there was a break in the block, and you came back in the first game of the next block, shot 300 again. Am I mistaken on that? that no, that was a great day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that was a I great day. So. I would say no, so. Did you, uh, so, did get you this. For a 900 ring? or? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, no, it wasn't. But get this. The 11 shots before that, I went 10-bagger solid eight in the field ball. So, I actually lost one pin to perfect in 47 shots. Oh my God! Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. That's amazing. It's breaking news. So yeah. the one before that was two seventy nine was spare spare sheet to the fill solid eight. So I I went from twenty under par to like you know third in four games. So yeah, it was a good day. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I I was there. I was there for the first two three hundreds, and I I watched them. And then we left. Our parents wanted to drive home, so we drove home. And we got home, and later on that night, we were hanging out at the bowling alley, and somebody came back to the pro shop. And I'm t- when I say we, I'm talking about myself and Bill O'Neill and Joe Paluzic. And we're hanging out at the pro shop, and somebody comes back, and they're like, oh, you guys missed it. And we said, what? And they said, Norm Duke came back out after the break and shot another 300 for three in a row. We said, get the hell out of here. And they said, no, he really did it. So, I mean, again, like one of the, one of the absolutely legendary stories uh, that, that is out there you know, about, about how you have, uh, how you've carried yourself on the lanes for sure. Uh, one of the other ways that people know you very well, Mr. Duke is for your gamesmanship. As I said, Rob and I are fans of the game, right, Rob? And, and when we watch bowling, we watch bowling a different way. So we do. you're not going to be able to brush us off with an answer. About, so you oh, appreciate no, some of it. <laughs> oh, oh, Rob, oh, talk about love it. it. Talk about it, Rob. I love it. Oh my God. I love it pick up on every little thing. I mean, it's, it's the, honestly, when we, when we bowled juniors, I stole some things from you. Joe Palooza <laughs> stole some things from you. We used to tie our shoes in the middle of a match. If we wanted to slow somebody down, maybe tie the shoes, maybe have a problem with our, with our tape that we had to adjust, et cetera. So stole all those moves from you credit to you for that. Uh, but, I got a move for you. If you want a storied move, uh, Del Ballard and I are bowling at Jupiter Lanes in uh, in, in Dallas. And uh, at one point in the match, I'm down, of course. Uh, I needed to not slow things down. I needed to just stop and think for a while. So I got off the right lane and onto the left lane. I took a chair and I set it on the approach. And I sat down in the chair facing the pins. And I sat there and I sat there and I sat there. I don't know how many minutes. It was much longer than five minutes. And, I mean, the whole crowd is murmuring, and some people are now starting to yell and heckle. Others are going, cry, don't them, Duke. You know, the people got money on both sides. And they're held hostage by me sitting on, on the, <laughs> the approach in a chair. If you ask Bill Ballard about that, he will say it was eternity is what it was, and he never lost a game afterward. So whatever I did, and I didn't do it just to mess him up, I did it because I needed a break. I just needed a break. So some of these things that I've done that seemingly gamesmanship is purely accidental. 
And then I learned afterward, wow, that had an effect. I didn't mean it for it to have an effect, but it did. And so then you learn. But look, everything within the, within the rules and and no holds barred for everyone, in fact, if it's within the rules. And it's not, you know, I don't want to aggravate uh, somebody. I don't want uh, somebody to say, look, that's my child right there in the front row and you're, and you're uh, preventing me from feeding my child. No, I don't want any of that, no, for sure. But if I have a choice to make somebody feel uncomfortable or comfortable, I'm also bowling for my sons. <laughs> if I do good, he eats breakfast. If I don't, you know, he has cereal. So it's a two-way street there as well. But nothing vicious. No, no, I, I'm not that vicious at all. Most, most of the time, in fact, that they, people blame me on uh, gamesmanship. It's purely accidental. And that's and Rob, that's what makes yeah. him the best. Oh, that's what I makes mean, him the best at it. So I'm, Mike, so I'm just going to leave there. Mike, I mean, yeah, because he, he doesn't. He doesn't even know what he's doing. That's good. That's, that's, <laughs> that's why he's the best. That's it. That's it. I mean, he was forged out of the action games of foosball. I mean, how do you expect him not to have? <laughs> there you go. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. I mean. All, no holds barred. No holds barred for sure. Uh, so, Mr. Duke, we, Rob and I, as I said, we watch a lot of bowling. Uh, a couple weeks ago when you were making a run at, at I believe it was in the, one of the tournaments where you won a title this year, uh, Tommy Jones and Stu Williams happened to be in the booth commentating while you were bowling. And you were bowling a match, and Tommy Jones is talking about his experiences with you bowling on the Dallas Strikers and bowling on tour in general. And he tells the guys in the booth in the audience that night, and I happen to be part of the audience. He says, you know, whenever, whenever Norm misses a 10-pin, you can be sure that he's going to check the approach after he misses the 10-pin. And right after that, you go up, you happen to miss the 10-pin, and, and damn if you don't check the approach. So on Sweep the Rack podcast, we wanted to give you the chance to respond to Tommy Jones's call of you checking the approach all the time and then doing it right after his call. I mean, that was a pretty good call by him. So does he hit the nail on the head or how do you want to respond oh, to that? Yeah. Yeah. I was told about that. So I went back on to flow bowling just to listen. Cause Tommy's part of the strikers and I love the guy to death. He's just such a funny, funny man. And I listened to it and he did exactly what you just said. He said, well, Norm's probably not going to miss this. Never does. But if he does, he'll check that approach. I guarantee it. And turned, if I don't miss it and check the approach. Well, here's where the background is. First of all, normally if I do miss a 10 pin, there's something wrong, you know, with my delivery, whether it be approach or, or just me being bad. And, and if it's like the fifth day of the event, it's more often the approach than anything else. Cause we make a, big percentage of tendon but then brian voss when we do clinics and stuff and he gives this this uh monologue about you gotta look good when you're up there you know if you don't bowl good you still gotta look good he says if you miss something you go to the approach you got to make sure it was not your fault <laughs> nobody is allowed to think that you're capable of missing that on your own <laughs> and so he's preaching that We've done so many of these together. I think some of that is a habit now, and I'm sorry, but I'm guessing it is because it does seem like if I miss one, I'm going to that approach now, no matter what. Oh, no question. Got to blame I, something, right, guys? Yeah, I think yeah. I was just going to say, I think that you, this is something that you guys have spread around to bowling now because even your general <laughs> go up, 
and watch the guy with the worst arm swing in the world you've ever seen miss a 10 pin. And what does he do? He checks the approach. I mean, honestly, even I do. Oh, I no. steal it from you. I <laughs> no, you do too. But yeah. And I, I, my arm swing stinks too. So I should just use myself <laughs> as the example, but I think it's a, uni- it's a universal thing now. It's a universal excuse. We can all get, we can all get away with out there. Okay. But if Bill O'Neill ever checks his approach after 10 pin miss, then I'm giving it to him. And that's when I'm, oh, gonna, I'm going, I'm going all in. <laughs> when when Bill I, I told you I watch a lot of bowling watch a lot of Bill when Bill misses it, it, he he looks around like the bowling alley is going to collapse like like yeah. something is just absolutely out of place and wrong here because the ball just like they've turned the air exactly. off in the building and they've oh, got nothing God. it's something has yeah has happened I, I Honestly, I tell him as his friend to try and keep him in check. I said, listen, since you became a pro, you become kind of bougie, and it's almost like you think you can't throw a bad shot anymore. But, listen, even you make bad shots sometimes. So I have to I have to check him sometimes in that way. Right, Rob? We got to try and keep him in check just a little bit. Keep oh, him yeah. in check. I'm yes, sir. A you know, little bit. Yeah. He's going to listen to this interview, bit. and he's going to – He's going to listen to this interview and hear Norm talking all kinds of good stuff about him, and now he's going to be even become more bougie. Oh, I know. I know we're going to have to hear about it. Well, you know, truth be known, uh, one time in the Dallas Strikers, he's going first, and I'm I'm in the two-hole where I belong. And I made mention of of to our our third-place guy at the time. I don't know who it was. I said, look, I put Bill in there, and I told him why I put Bill O'Neill in that position. Because first seems to be not that important. Oh, no. First is hugely important. But I said to the kid, I said, because if Bill O'Neill leaves a two-pin out of the gate, he's going to spare that two-pin, and we're off and running with a mark. That's huge. Well, I left a two-pin in the second frame and missed it. <laughs> now, to miss a two-pin, I can tell you that is decades worth of bowling before I'm going to miss a two-pin. And uh, I come back, and Bill puts his arm on me, and he said, well, you can't play the first spot. <laughs> in other words, I can't lead off because I can't make that two-pin. He is just True. adorable that way, and he will give it to us. I'll tell you what. And we enjoy oh, yeah. it. It's all in fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm so happy to have him a part of our team. And a part, you guys, really, he's a part of of my career, of, of both bowling against him, playing with him on the strikers, and – uh, you can tell I, I I feel very highly of him and Tommy Jones, and I learned yeah, from him no, every day. Absolutely, and as his friend, honestly, it's been really cool to watch him uh, compete not only against you but with you. And uh, you know, it's been been quite quite uh, surreal for for Rob and I to uh, watch that unfold. So, Mr. Duke, what what is life like off the lanes for you? I feel like people don't know a lot about you off the lane. So when you're not bowling, you know, what are you doing? We know that you have a wife, you have a son. I read that in your PBA bio. So when you're not on the lanes, what are you into? Well, today I had a once-in-a-lifetime thing happen. I was at my son's college graduation. Oh, congratulations. Amazing. Congratulations to Brandon. Um, that was mm-hmm. so cool. So, yeah, we have, just like everybody else in the world, we have school. We have uh, mortgage payments. And, but I, uh, I live in Florida because we chase the snow, and I wanted to be able at any time to go home, take a week off, and get out of the cold. So we really enjoy Florida. Most of the time, it's just great weather. I love playing golf, even though I, uh, I've, I've removed myself from any kind of competition. You know, we'll bet a couple bucks here, a couple bucks there, but it's all in fun because I need that break and I don't need to come and grind at something else. But I do really, really enjoy playing golf. So does my wife. So her and I get out uh, 
as often as we can. And, you know, aside from actually competing, I do a lot of teaching. And I'm active with, I don't know, I got a real estate business at home where we have a couple of rental properties and we've had for many years. I'm the handyman guy, so if we need something uh, fixed, I'm, I'm the first responder there, unless, of course, I'm on the road. But we enjoy that business, and I'm as active in it as you would imagine. Um, but look, I've got a full life and, and I enjoy myself. Um, the bowling has kind of gotten monotonous guys, honestly, but as long as I'm still doing things that are, you know, in my mind, uh, worthy of continuation, you know, like this year, that was worthy for me the last two or three years. Nah, maybe I'd look back and say, gosh, I could have retired and it wouldn't have made any difference. But I'm hanging on because I uh, still feel like I'm winnable, and I don't think that uh, my body of work is done. So until then, I'm going to still bowl more than I handyman. That's for sure. <laughs> we Might we hope not mind. either. But what what's the last thing you fixed in one of your properties? The last thing I fixed. Well, I had to do a pool. I had to take an overground pool out, and that that was a job. I had to fix fences because of hurricanes, you know, small stuff like that. But Man, I can hold my own. You took a I'm pool out yourself? I'm, I'm, I'm highly impressed. No, 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 no. An <laughs> overground pool, and it wasn't by myself. <laughs> I had, oh, I had okay. a, right. a friend helping me that lived there, actually. He's my renter. Mike, could you imagine if you had something break in your house and Norm Duke showed up at your front door to fix it? <laughs> I would go for it. I would go for my life. That guys awesome. that's exactly that's exactly how it happens is when we lease it oftentimes they don't know a thing and then one day they're watching television and then they'll call Karen and say we got a problem and then they'll look at me when I open when they open the door and just you could see it happen right there right in front of you yeah that's so, so that they're be- they're great fans hey they're great fans of mine now but seemingly all the renters that have been in our houses started out as non bowling fans and now they're into it. Uh, Mike, what school did your son, of, uh, what school sorry, did your son graduate from today? He graduated from uh, Florida Polytechnic. Okay. All right. Great. I believe it's what it was. It's in Lakeland. Awesome. Good. Yeah. Good luck to him. Good luck. You know, I'm, I'm a yeah, teacher, yeah, yeah. so I just like to know. I just like to hear. But uh, yeah, good luck to him going forward. Rob, you wanted to jump in. What were you going to say? Yeah, that reminds me of the scene of Karate Kid when in the first beginning of the movie where Miyagi's the handyman. Uh, in and uh, maybe that's where the next great bowler is going to come from. You know, I know. N- Mr. Duke is going to have a tenant move in who has a young kid, and <laughs> he's going to go to fix something in their apartment, and the kid's going to be right. like playing with a play toy bowling set <laughs> exactly, with two yeah. hands. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know he's going to take him under his wing and school him, and then he becomes the next champ. Rob, that sounds that. Yeah, you know, I see this I think, movie. I think, uh, you know, I'm gonna... so okay. So, Mr. Duke, we just have a fire questions for you that we ask a lot of people before uh, we get you out of here. Uh, what is your favorite ball ever? Ah, the it's a it, I'm hard to say the name of it. Uh, it was a three three hundred ball. What that uh, orange storm. Firestorm. Uh, per- yeah. Firestorm. Pearl. Yeah. Pearl. I, yeah. I was not on the storm staff, by the way. That was one of the first storm balls I'd ever drilled up. 
And then after I got finished with three 300s in a row, uh, Bill Christman called me up and said, send it here. I want it in the office. I'm like, well, can I at least put some games on it? <laughs> I, I like it. This thing is good. <laughs> well, that was one of my favorites. Say hey, the beast. That beast was something that oh, my God. resurrected. Oh, the beast is just, that's like one of my greatest pro bowling watching memories is watching you win titles with the beast. Yeah, and I never threw the beast straight. I never could get it to work going straight at all, ever, never. But, man, when I started hooking that ball, it was beautiful. Same thing with the so, orange piranha. I always remember you using the orange piranha and hooking the lane with the orange piranha. Yeah, I didn't win much with it, but I had a couple of good events with that ball. Uh, you know, what? I'd love to say that it was the Norm Duke hammer or the Norm Duke advantage, but, you know, those never got to be uh, my favorites. But they had my name on them, and they were good, and I won with, I won with all of them. I loved them. But the favorites that stand out, yeah, the beast and that, that firestorm. Yeah, I remember. I remember that the fire star, I was going to say that earlier, was the ball that you were using when you shot three consecutive 300s because I went out and drilled one up the next week. And honestly, it was one of my favorite balls ever. Definitely in my top yeah. five. So, uh, And then here here lately, here lately, that uh, Crux Prime, that, not Crux Prime, the Crux uh, Pearl, which is discontinued, and the Crux Prime is as close to that as possible. Both of those, I'm in love with both of them. Okay. They're my right, kind so of balls. I can do a lot of things with them something more current as well. You can't name yourself, obviously, to, to Rob and I, you would be in this conversation. You can't name yourself. To you, who is the GOAT? Who's the greatest player of all time? Walter Ray is the best player of all time. Jason Belmonte is the best that has ever played the game. Mm. Wow. The great so you feel, that, you, you feel that one day he will be known as, as the greatest? Yeah, unless the uh, unless the the environment or the playing field changes dramatically, I mean something that nobody saw coming. Uh, it's a matter of time before. I mean, he's he's twenty twenty one titles, whatever that is, and in goodness, not very long at all. And and he, he doesn't just win titles; he dominates them, kind of like Walter did. So I got to see that happening. Uh, I think that that uh, Jason will be the best bowler of all time eventually. Unless, of course, somebody else comes along that rivals him and prevents him from winning every week. So we have to let that play out. We also have to let the injury thing play out, uh, health, longevity, all that. But right now, oh, Walter Ray Williams by far. Rob, I have a twist to our scenario before with Mr. Miyagi. Uh, I, I know for a fact that Mr. Duke is really good at throwing the bowling ball with a towel. So I'm going to call it right now. I think the next iteration is going to be somebody that comes out on tour and throws the ball from a towel and takes over the two-handers. <laughs> All right. Nice call. Let me just uh, say yeah. that in, in the rears, but now. Nice call on that one. Okay. All right. So we're going, to, we're going to wrap up and get you out of here with that one. But before we do, uh, Mr. Duke, we wanted to give you an opportunity. You know, obviously, we know that you're with Storm, and you've been with Storm for a long time. You continue to win with their products. But uh, what what other uh, companies would you like to plug? Well, yeah, we have uh, Next Level Bowling. I've I've been part owner and founder since, goodness, uh, about 15 years now. Uh, but we do uh, lessons, clinics, seminars, guest speaking, anytime you want a pro bowler to come in. We'll book anybody. It doesn't matter. But uh, that's a company that I'm involved with quite a bit. So if you ever need or wanted a clinic or something, nextlevelbowling.com. And, uh, and, of course, Storm, they're, they're, they're just 
godsend to me and my family. I can't thank them enough, and I really, truly love all the people involved. So uh, they take precedence over everyone else when it comes to the, uh, the, the belief in their product. Well, Mr. Duke, we want to say thank you again. We appreciate the time. The, this Rob, this was this yeah. was amazing. What an opportunity for us. So uh, right. we we want to say uh, thank you again, and uh, thank you for the time. Go ahead, Rob. I'll just say absolute honor, Norman. Uh, good luck on uh, the PBA 50. I know that's kind of in mid swing right now. And uh, hey, why don't you try to knock that Walter Ray off? Uh, yeah, he's had. had been oh, I'll get a him. Bit of- I'll get him. I'll get my licks in. He knows it. Well, let's hey, I, I, that's, it's a great, hey, that's a great rivalry between him and I, and it's not really a rivalry him against me or anything. It's just that that he uh, has the utmost respect for me, me for him, and both of us elevate our play when we're around one another. So uh, that's something that I get to enjoy on an ongoing basis, along with along with Weber, of course, and there are others, Parker, Amleto, uh, and and the list goes on and on. Yeah, but the, he came on our show, uh, Mr. Williams came on our show a couple weeks ago, and uh, he went on one three straight on the PBA fifty. So Rob, you know, you know what's coming for Mister Duke here. I mean, you know, I do know. We we yeah, he, we, we, hey, we. I like the sound of that. Nice. Yeah, listen. We also talked shit on DJ Archer and Oscar Palermo earlier this year, and then they made a couple shows and made a couple cuts in a row. So we kind of have that golden touch over here, if you know what I'm saying. So hopefully that rubs off on you too. But to all our listeners out there, listen. Please support these the, the things that these guys and the companies that support these players. You know, this is a huge part of, uh, of how they make their living and how they do their thing. And uh, we want to make sure that, that you guys get the support of, uh, of all the fans out there. So, again, Mr. Duke, we appreciate the time. And uh, we know our listeners are going to enjoy this one. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Excellent. Listen, glad to be here. Hey, look, if I'm any good going forward, I'll be back. Yes. We would, anytime you. you want. Anytime, anytime you want. Absolutely. All right, guys. Y'all be good. And to the listeners, uh, thanks for listening. We appreciate you. All right, take it easy, Rob. Man, I ne- Norm coming out of the the, the action, the foosball. The, I, I just can't get over that. Like he he was forged in action bowling. Like this is like if he wasn't if he wasn't my favorite bowl before, he's. Definitely my favorite bowler now, but he was my favorite bowler before. So I love the guy. He's amazing. He's got a great personality, too. Man, what a master of the game, honestly. He is. Yeah, to to hear that story of how he won and then went eight years without winning and to hear some of the things that he referred to in in, in that he had to work through to, to get to the point where he was winning again and then obviously winning consistently for the rest of his career. But, uh, yeah, that was just amazing. So uh, I hope everybody enjoyed that. I, I Blown away by that interview. Uh, you know, obviously, you know the guy's going to be an entertaining guy just because of his personality on TV. But, uh, yeah, definitely more than I expected. Would you agree, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I always knew Norm was a, a you know, had a kind of a big personality. He was a big character. But just talking to him about it, like, you could tell the passion's still there, too. He's, he, you know, he... he I, I look forward to seeing him in the in, in the league and uh, getting to chat with him maybe a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope everybody enjoys that one. So, uh, Rob, we, we have a little bit more to get to tonight. Uh, there was some big news in the bowling world this week, yes? Yes. 
we had a. Do you want to tell uh, people what what we're referring to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, last week, I believe it was Monday. Um, not this past, but the previous week, we had a 900 shot at Farmingdale Lanes on one and two. Uh, Jeremy Molito, I hope I said his last name right. We'll we'll get him on here. Uh, shot 900. But the one thing that was crazy about this 900 that sticks out to me is he used two different balls on two different lanes and it was a corner pair. And from what I've been told from numerous people and I, Hey, look, I bowl in that area my whole life. Uh, Farmingdale isn't exactly the easiest bowling center to strike in. So uh, let's see if uh, I can get this thing to work here. Uh, We will welcome on the show right now. Jeremy Melidio. Am I saying that right, Jeremy? How's it going guys? It's Melito actually. How are you? Melito. Okay. Yes. Welcome. Welcome. Actually, now we're I good. To say, I, I love the Shook Ones intro. I feel like I'm on 8 Mile right now. Oh, yeah, no doubt. We we love the hip-hop yeah. over here. Yeah, Wu-Tang, is for the, Wu-Tang is for the children. That's it. Actually, so, Wu-Tang documentary coming out next week, by the way, for any oh, listeners yeah, that are in the hip-hop showtime. Yeah, four-part documentary. And – I think they had a, a an avenue or something in Staten Island named after them this weekend. So big shout to Wu Tang. <laughs> I'm sure they listened to the podcast, Mike. So <laughs> I think so, uh, it. that's what I heard. Yeah, true. So Jeremy, welcome, man. Welcome on the show. Uh, first, thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no doubt, absolutely. So first, congratulations, man. Congratulations. Oh, on, thank on, you very on, much. On 36 in a row. Now, obviously, you know you're not the first person to shoot 900. We know that uh, everybody, all of our listeners understand that, but you're the first person to shoot 900 since sweep the rack started. So that becomes exactly. significant for us. Yeah. Because, you know, this is something that we, that we would like to cover. We, we want to bring all kinds of different news to the bowling world, not just about uh, pro bowling in general, but across the board. So um, I don't know, Rob, where do you want to start? I guess, Jeremy, tell us a little bit about your background as a bowler. We, we know some common people, you and I. So I know, sure. you know, you're you're a regular league bowler around the uh, metropolitan New York area. I believe you also bowl some UBA stuff. So tell us a little bit about your who you are as a bowler. What's your background? Where you come from? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I bowled. Um, I bowled in high school and college. I bowled um, competitively for you know, better part of a decade now. After college, I bowled some more of the uh, local amateur tournaments, some of the PBA regionals, things like that. I'm go to the Proprietor Cup pretty much every year. I'm actually getting my card next month, going to explore some more of the professional stuff, um, build the Masters a few times. So I really I, – I chase it, you know, probably 30 weekends out of the year, go cross-country, you know, tri-states every weekend, bowl pretty much as much as I can. Yeah, I do a lot of the UBA stuff, bowling federation, you know, just try to get out there as much as possible. And uh, where did you bowl in college? I bowled for Stony Brook. Uh, that's on Long Island. I stayed – Stayed home, worked, went to college, bowled. Okay, and what do you do now? You work full time job, or? Yeah, I'm a I'm a financial analyst. I work in New York City. Um, so actually, what I found interesting is I I was listening to the Duke interview, and you know, so many of the pros have the story where school wasn't their thing and bowling was their thing. Is you know, luckily I was I was better in school, and I had a opportunity to kind of use college and bowling to supplement my income. So that's kind of the route that I took. I'm super passionate about the game, but it's more of a, a supplemental thing to my actual career at this point. Yeah, I think, I think that's a common story for all of us, right, Rob, where 
you know, we, we all ch- chase bowling, like Jeremy said, and, and, and we, we get the action where we can or when we can. But, you know, other things just start to take priority and uh, bowling has to be on the back burner. And, you know, we still like to compete as much as we can. But, you know, you, you, you can't always do what you want, I guess, is, uh, is, is what you learn as you as you get into your career a little bit. So, Jeremy, to get into the 900 set in the 900 series, uh, you know, obviously, and, and no, no discredit to you and your series bowler. So I think you'll understand the, the perspective we're taking here, but you know, you were bowling on a house shot. We're going to assume. Yes. Of course. Yep. Yep. Of now course. you, you, I saw that you threw two different balls on the two different lanes and that was for the entire night, same two different balls on both lanes. Yes, sir. Um, I had actually bowled on the pair the week prior and shot a big six thirty eight. And so I noticed that one, lane one was a little bit tighter and lane two was hooking a little bit sooner, and especially if you got it left quick. So I kind of just took the game plan that I was going to use two different balls and kind of just see where that took me. And, you know, luckily it took me to, I guess, perfection. But there's there's so much luck involved, you know. I mean, so many variables. You can't get oh, wrapped yeah. once. I mean, I, I, I'm not naive enough to know that you, you need a, an extreme amount of luck to get it done. I'm just lucky to be able to – you know, be the 36th person to, to, to achieve it. Yeah. It's gotta be your night for sure, but you still, you still have to make the shots. Go go ahead, Rob. What, uh, what two balls did you use? I used a hammer web tour on the left and a Columbia 300 spoiler on the right. I love that web tour, by the way. Um, that's uh, made my top five, I think. Yeah. It's one of my, one of my favorites right now. Um, when did you I, realize... would think, I would think that those two balls would be number one and two on your list. No, <laughs> I mean, no, no, one in one, a one in one, a really like hell. Game breakers uh, number well, one. And then, then the web tour. Well, yeah. Well, Man, this well, guy's well, crazy, well. Rob, this guy's crazy. He has two balls. He shot 900 with, and they're not even number one on his list. I don't know about that. I don't I mean, know. It could have just been one set. And then, you know, that's the, then I mean, Mike, you, you never used one ball in a tournament, won the tournament by, you know, out averaging a million pins and then the ball. Oh, yeah. Comes out of no, no. I, I understand. I, I kid. No, no. But, yeah. but, Jeremy, so, uh, listen, I'll, I, you know, bowling on easier stuff, right? And, and again, no sure. discredit, but a lot of guys strike a lot, right? We've all had league sessions where I'm sure we've thrown a lot of strikes or started out with a huge string. And, you know, it doesn't really seem to be anything new these days, right? Even when somebody shoots sure. 300 in a league, like, I almost feel as no one really pays that much attention. It's just, oh, ho-hum, somebody bowled a 300. So from from your recall of the night, when did it go from being just another string of strikes by a good bowler, right, to, yeah. oh, man, I, I really have a chance to do something special here. Talk, talk to Rob and I about that. Where did that transition happen? Yeah, so it was actually really funny. Um, I'm friends with the GM, Steven Zizek, that was working that night. He was at the front desk. And I was bowling right by the desk, one and two, kind of really close to the desk. So after the first 300, he's joking around. He's like, you want me to announce it? I go, no, don't worry about it. Probably going to, you know, shoot 660 anyway. Not really, not worth it. So, you know, the second one happens and people are starting to look over. I think people started to really realize after game two that, you know, I had done a game one, done a game two, and now, you know, we're on the verge of something big. And... I, people, you know, people started to migrate over after game two, really. By about the third or fourth frame, I had, you know, half the bowling alley over watching every frame. I, one guy in my in the fifth frame screamed. I guess he wrapped the ten and just screamed, and people were like, "Shut up!" Like people trying to get him quiet, you know. But after that, everybody was, uh, you know, everybody, the entire bowling alley was watching probably from the sixth frame on. It was it was really an awesome atmosphere. 
Okay. All right. So it, it really went that deep into it where you were already halfway through the third game before people really started to pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. Especially being on the corner. I think that's honestly a blessing because it was a, it was pretty private, and especially not having to wait on both sides. We went nice and quick. You know, um, people didn't really realize what was going on, didn't give too much attention until about, you know, uh, 28 shots in. And then that was just, you know, just get the last few off and we were good to go. Okay. And uh, what, was your highest ser- what was your highest series before this? I had shot 878, um, two years almost oh. a day. Yeah, I um I shot 278 the first game and then went 300 300. So completely different perspective because there was no pressure. It was just kind of like how high right. can I make it now, you know? Okay. It was, Go ahead, Rob. Yeah. Um, now, like I always put myself in that position as a bowler. Like, okay, 10 frame, you've thrown 300 your first two two games, and for some reason, my Day dream fantasy will always be trying doing this the USBC team tournament, but you know, obviously. <laughs> but anyway, so I guess my question would be, how nervous were you throwing those last three shots? Because I just put myself in that position, and I don't see myself being not nervous. So, like, how explain <laughs> what was going on in your head and your your body that those last three shots? Those last three shots were like truly out of body experience. I mean, there were people you know, rose back, taking video. I was just not looking up at all. I couldn't even acknowledge the people. You know, people say, looking back on the video, that I looked super relaxed. I was the exact opposite of relaxed. I was so nervous, I couldn't even look up at the people, you know. It was just right. throw it forward, throw it forward. Lean two had kind of gotten to the point that they were so tubed. Like, if you just threw it forward and got it there, you had a really good chance to strike. I was actually more nervous in game two because I didn't like my look on lane one anymore. So that's the lane I, I had to finish on lane one, game two. So once I got through game two, I felt pretty confident about my shot in game three. I was just very happy that I got to finish on the right lane twice. So I think that played a big part in it as well. Great. Well, awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah, yeah great, really. great bowling. Congrats. Thank Congratulations, know, man. Thank you. And, uh, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Any, any, I mean, obviously you want to plug, uh, you know, I would say EBI, right, for the balls that you were using, yes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually signed with Columbia 300. I signed a few weeks ago, so I have to uh, thank them. Okay. Uh, Turbo Grips, Turbo Grips I'm, I've been signed with them for two years. Got to thank them. And then I work at uh, R&D Bowling Supplies Pro Shop. I work there part-time. So, you know, I want to thank them for everything they've done to, done for me as well. And to thank you guys for having me on. I actually – he'd kill me if, he did, if I didn't mention this. I got to thank Joe Stillman for uh, his part in uh, all of this. Um, he he actually is the reason that I was able to do it because he almost killed me like eight years ago at a tournament. You know how he gets temperamental. He stoned a nine in one event, and I was bowling on his pair, stoned a nine, bashed the ball return. A virtual energy came within one inch of my head and almost took me out. So without him having bad aim that day, this never would have happened. Every Everybody's got a Stillman story, right, Rob? If we had a list for everybody Stillman has almost killed, we would literally have a list the size of like seven pages. So I'm glad you're you oh, still absolutely. alive, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm glad you survived the Stillman encounter. Uh, we've all survived yeah. our Stillman encounters. So I appreciate that story. Sure. Yeah, and like- uh, <laughs> shout, shout to Joe for, for putting us together and uh, giving us the opportunity to reach out to you. So we appreciate it as well. For sure. Thank you guys for so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
Yeah, no doubt, man. If I if, if if I see you around, then I'm I'm at some of the events. Uh, I'll definitely I'll definitely introduce myself and I'll make sure I give you a shout. But again, man, congratulations and and whatever awards and accolades are coming your way, congratulations. You know, I know Storm did some did some pretty nice stuff for Joe Navarro when he shot 900. So I would expect did, DBI yeah. to kind of step up, Columbia to step up. You know, they, they, I, they can't <laughs> let Storm just be the know? only company that's doing something like that. So. You know, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you'll definitely have some kudos coming your way. So, again, thanks for your time, man. Congratulations, and uh, and good luck out there with, with uh, your future bowling as you continue on. Good luck. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Yeah, no doubt. All right, guys. So, Rob, another episode in the books, homie. Yeah, I mean, the Norm Duke interview was incredible. Uh, I mean, yo – if you're a kid out there and you're listening to this podcast and you're, and you're trying to get something out of these interviews, the Norm Duke is the most versatile bowler ever to play the game. The guy could slow hook it. He could go straight. He, he the spies in his voice when he talked about being a, um, a one, a one trick pony, you know, kind of stuck out to me a little bit. So uh, man, what a great dude. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, hanging out with him and maybe buying him a beer, hopefully. Warning, though, don't go with unbeveled fingers. You didn't hear that here. You didn't get that advice here. So just a warning, okay? And, uh, yeah, sh- shout shout to Jeremy Melito for, for his 900. You know, they're, com- they're getting more common these days, Rob, but as we said before the show we talked, you know, you still got to throw the shots. I mean, it's still amazing to, to be able to string that many together. I-, I ask myself these days, though, like, should we get to the point, Rob, where if somebody throws the first 36, they keep going? You mean <laughs> – I like that idea. So they just keep letting them – so, yeah. I mean – Yeah, I mean, they just keep going. Everybody finishes <laughs> up, and they just get up and bowl their next frame as if they're bowling a fourth game, and they keep going until they miss. And, and we see who who attains the record for the most strikes in a row in a competitive environment. Yeah. Well, I mean, when, I don't know. when Norm Duke said he had like 40, what do you have? When he bowled those three 300s, he also had a 279 the game before. So, Yeah, well, I you mean, also have a guy, honestly, there's a guy, Tom Jordan from New Jersey, who shot 899 and I believe 10 or 1199 for four. Yeah. So I've heard of that record as well. So, you know, there's some different things out there. What I remember about 900 is I remember when Jeremy Sonnenfeld shot 900 and then – a co- yeah, a couple a couple weeks later, I saw him at a, a college bowling tournament, and I literally like ran across the bowling alley to go see him throw a shot because I was like, I gotta see this kid throw a shot who shot nine hundred. And to, you know, to his credit, he did throw really good. But uh, well, Mike, you know, well, Mike, I mean, we gotta though you gotta bring up though the most controversial nine hundred, Glenn Allison, that never got sanctions. Now yeah, you that's, really just, want to- that's just nonsense. That's just nonsense at this point. Just like sanctions. Pete I mean, not getting in the whole yeah, thing. It's just stupid, you know, especially especially today. If we're going to have this many 900s and, and, you know, they're going to be bold in the environment that we know they're bold in, you know, and even even Jeremy, you know, admitted to that or, or alluded to that in, in our conversation with him, you know, and I'm not taking anything away from the people that are doing it. They're, they're bowling in the environment that they're given. But if we're going to give people those and call them legitimate, I think you could definitely sanction Glenn Allison's 900. So well, that's where be I amazing. That, but. Mike, wouldn't that be amazing for the USBC? Like, if Chad Murphy came in and said, "We're gonna, um, 
we're going to verify his 900 and we're going to give him a ring and we're going to have like an award ceremony for it. Wouldn't that be amazing for the USBC to do? I think everybody would absolutely love it. It'd be like Bud Seeley coming out and offering Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. I mean, it would be an unbelievable gesture and I think they should do it. And I think it would make a lot of people happy, especially these days when a lot of people aren't really that happy with the USBC. Um, you know, there's always complaints and everybody's always got something to say bad about them. But I mean, overall though, back to the 900, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna say I've come close, but I, I've had some big sets in my day, but I mean, you, every, you have to have some unbelievable breaks to come, come your way. Uh, uh, and I remember how, uh, when I used to talk to Sonnenfeld about the 900, he was so embarrassed about it. Like it reminded me of when Norm Duke was talking about, um, you know, being the youngest player and he was kind of, uh, embarrassed about it. Like not like didn't want anybody to talk about it Dude, Jeremy Sonnefeld was completely like he would dodge anytime you would, if you called him Mr. 900 or you, you, you said anything of that, he would completely like, uh, go and just be like, Oh, I don't want to talk about it. No, I understand. I, I can understand that aspect puts pressure on, but all right, Rob, it's Game of Thrones time, man. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, but so All right, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Rob and I are going to go. We're going to go enjoy Game of Thrones. Uh, follow us on social media at Sweep the Rack on all platforms. Email us if you want to get in touch with us. Sweep the Rack at Gmail. Anybody out there in the bone world that's interested in being a guest, get at us. DM us. Email us. Shoot us a text. It's not that hard. Rob, our guest list has been primo. Primo. So if you're in the bowling world and you want to get on here, we're willing to have you on. We've had some really premium guests. Obviously, we're not hurting for guests. And, Rob, we got another great one lined up next week for people. So, we you know, if you're in the bowling world and you want to get on here, you know, we're giving you the opportunity. We're giving you an outlet. Obviously, we had a regular guy on tonight, you know, shot 900, but gave him an opportunity to come on. So, if you want to get on, get at us. We're here. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on all platforms. Rob, take it easy. Have a good week, homie, and, uh, and I'll talk to you. You too. Peace. All right. You are now listening to Sweep the Rack podcast featuring Brooklyn Rob and 